Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Jesus, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Thank you. Hold on, we're hooked together here. So a number of years ago, uh, we did a driving trip, my husband and I, it was before we even had kids, uh, to Newfoundland. And again, most of you here know that I'm from Newfoundland, so we're going to visit family. And one of the things that surprises many people when they decide they want to go to Newfoundland is discovering how far the actual island is from Nova Scotia. Uh, frequently, people will say, you know, I'm going to Sydney, I'm going to Nova Scotia, I was thinking I could pop over to Newfoundland for a day, and then I say, well, um, the shortest ferry is six and a half to seven hours. So that's the one to get to the west coast of the island. They go, oh. So uh, we had planned this driving trip, um, and we wanted to strategize it. We were going to start on the west coast of the island. That's where my brother lives. And so what we did, which I think was wise, was we planned to take the night ferry, which was a midnight crossing, meaning that we could sleep on the ferry. We booked a bunk. You can book bunks to sleep in or cabins. And then that way, we didn't have to pay for another night in a hotel, right? We're like, perfect, it doubles up, and then we'll get to our brothers, my brothers early the next day. Now, also strategizing this trip, obviously, as we were driving, we wanted to stop at some of the sites along the way. And one of the ones we were stopping at was the Bay of Fundy. Maybe some of you have been to the Bay of Fundy. It's quite incredible, as you know. Uh, What happens, what makes this a really popular place to go visit is that in the Bay of Fundy, the tides are really exceptional. They're really high, really low, and they change dramatically throughout the day. And so as we were there, the tides go down, and then you actually are like walking the ocean floor. Maybe you've done this, right? And there's really cool patterns in the sand, and you can see lots of shells and lots of other new things. So we had timed it as such that we would spend the day in the Bay of Fundy, and then the driving was just the right amount that from there we would drive until we got to the Sydney Ferry leaving at midnight. Perfect, right? 
except we hadn't accounted for one thing. What we hadn't accounted for was having spent the day walking in mud at the Bay of Fundy and realizing that when we left, we had nowhere to clean up. We didn't have anywhere we were staying. And so that meant that night, after spending all day in the muck, we had to drive eight hours and then get on this ferry, sleep all night with this grime all over my legs. And you're trying to clean up a bit in, the, in like a local bathroom, but that doesn't work very well. And so when I got to my brother's the next morning, I was like, nice to see you. Can I please get a shower? Like, I just felt completely disgusting. And you can imagine, right? Could not wait to wash the dirt off my feet. I thought of that story this week um, because I was reminded, as I thought of it, about how important foot washing was at this time when we read about this story in history, what an important part of hospitality foot washing was in the ancient Near East. And it makes sense, right? This is a time in the world where people walked everywhere. Everyone walked. And the shoes that they had, if they had shoes, were simple sandals. And the sandals weren't, you know, like Birkenstocks we have today or Tevis. They were just a flat sole with strings that basically held them up to your legs. A bare minimum protection. It was the desert, so in dry season, you know, you're walking in an inch of dust. In the wet season, you're walking in an inch of mud. And so what would happen is at people's homes, when you entered by the door, there'd be a basin and there'd be a jug and you'd sit down and someone would come and they'd pour water over your feet and clean the dirt off your feet, much as I would have quite enjoyed that day that I first arrived in Newfoundland after all night on the ferry. But the interesting thing is that this task, which probably, I mean, I hate feet. I think feet are disgusting in general, but... Um, <laughs> So this wouldn't be my favorite, but washing feet doesn't sound that horrible theoretically. But at the time, the act of washing feet was considered a very lowly task. In fact, it was only performed by the lowest servant in the household, the lowest slave or lowest servant. That was who did the foot washing. Foot washing was never, ever done peer to peer. You never said to your friend, oh, hey, let me wash your feet for you. You didn't do that. This is an honor-based culture, and that was something you just didn't do. This was a job reserved for those of a lesser status. In fact, there's even a story that we read from this time of a woman who wanted to wash her husband's feet. And this is at a time when men were considered of higher status than their wives, and he was a rabbi. And so she says, he's a learned rabbi. I want to have the honor of washing his feet. And he wouldn't let her. And they actually went to like a tribunal for her to ask permission because this was such a lowly activity. He was like, no, I can't let my wife do this. And she argued, oh, but because he's a learned teacher, I want to honor him. Um, in households, it's, it's been said that Jews wouldn't even allow Jewish slaves to wash their feet. That would be given to a non-Jew slave, a non-Jewish slave. It was never something that was done from a superior to an inferior. And in fact, in written, recorded history and in art and all kinds of different things, and remember, besides the Bible, we have lots of literature and recordings and history from this time. There is not an incident or a painting or a drawing where we ever see a superior washing an inferior's feet, a master washing a slave's feet, or a teacher washing a student's feet in all of recorded history at this time, except one, the only time 
this has ever, that this was, we have a record that this happened, was the story that Laura just read for us from the Bible when this man named Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And it was a wow moment. A wow moment for those who experienced it and a wow moment for those who read it afterwards. Really pivotal, really telling about who Jesus was. Um, now, some of you may not be that familiar with who Jesus was. Jesus, by this point in the story, had been teaching for a few years. He'd, he'd started to come out, and he was a great teacher. He was a great uh, he was someone who was able to do incredible things. He did amazing miracles. He healed people. He was challenging the religious establishment. And ultimately, what we are slowly learning as we've been journeying with him is that he was actually sent by God, and we believe he was God, God's very self. He had called a group of people to follow him, 12 disciples, to be his closest mentees. He was their mentor, and he was, they were, he was their mentor. They were his mentees. He was their rabbi. They were his apprentices. And so they did have that dynamic with him. And when the story starts, it is very close to the time that Jesus knew he was going to die. We don't know exactly what day this story happened. In fact, scholars debate this. Traditionally, often people uh, assume it was at the Last Supper, but some scholars point out we don't know for sure if it happened at what we call the Last Supper uh, because it, says it, it just says it was before the feast. So some people like to debate if it was the night before the Last Supper. And, uh, but this not, doesn't really change the story too much, but if you're interested in those things, you might want to dig into that a bit more. Who knows? Um, and he gathers them together. They have this meal, and he knows he, as I said, he knows he's about to die. And it says that he stands up, and it reads that as he gathers around his disciples, and they're all sitting around eating, and at this time, how people sat to eat, it didn't look like the Last Supper at all. They didn't have chairs. They would have reclined, and they would have leaned on one arm, eaten with the other, and all their feet would have been out around them like a starfish. And he stands up, and it says, before he does this, having loved his own who were in the world... This is verse 1. He now showed them the full extent of his love. So they've gathered for this meal, and he shows them the full extent of his love. This part of the Bible, when it was first written down, was written in a form of ancient Greek that we've interpreted into English. And that word like that full extent is from the word telos. And that word has this sense of completion and fullness. And so there's lots of ways people... Uh, interpret this exact wording in this passage. Here it says he showed him the full extent of his love. Sometimes people, it, some translations will read, they showed them, he showed his love to the uttermost. He showed the fullness of his love. Or might even say, he showed them his love to the very end. This idea of utter, complete, full love that he's showing them. And what is it that he does to show them love? It says that he stands up, he takes off his outer robe, and so now he's dressed like a servant would be dressed, and he starts washing their feet in the middle of the meal. And this would have been strange for a lot of reasons. Strange to wash feet in the middle of the meal. They, you know, usually we do wash before we eat, and uh, of course, they're already eating, and so this is very much uh, out of order. But it's also very strange who was doing this, as I've already named. He was their rabbi. He was their leader. He was not a slave. He was a fellow Jew. This was a student-teacher relationship. It was a Lord. He was the Lord above them. That was their relationship. And this would have been so shocking. Really? 
It would have been not, it would have been equally shocking today for one of our leaders to say to us, you know, I would like to show you my love by wiping your bottom when you leave the bathroom. That's how disgusting it was to them, right? This is an abhorrent thing that people don't do. And so it says, it's so strange, in fact, that Peter, one of his followers, who's known for being a bit impetuous, I have a soft spot for Peter, he wants to do the right thing, and he says, no, no, you can never wash my feet. This, no, 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 this is backwards. I should be washing your feet, if anything. You can see how extreme it is. So you might wonder, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this shocking, out-of-place thing? It's very, very surprising. Um, and we have some answers here. On one hand, it's a symbol. He says this to Peter, right? He says, listen, Peter's like, I, can do, like, I don't need to do this. And he's like, listen, actually, you can't save yourself on your own. I know you think you can. It's actually his pride sneaking in, right? He says, you need to receive my cleansing. And then Peter's like, okay, great. Okay, then like, cleanse all of me. Like, do the whole thing. Do the whole thing, right? Um, and inside, that's when Jesus says, well, listen, like once... Once you've had a bath, like when you get to the house, you don't bath again. They just wash your feet. In the same way, once I've saved you, you're saved, right? I know you. But you need that from me. And so he's, he's showing them symbolically what his, what his role in their life continues to need to be. And also he's modeling something for us. As the passage goes on, it does say, he says, now that I, your Lord, have washed your feet, you should watch one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than those who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. There are some traditions that have said we should be washing feet just like how we keep doing communion together. Um, but we believe this to, to mostly, again, be representative of what he means about our relationship with each other. This isn't something that the majority of the church has continued to do in Sunday services, right? Take off your socks. We're going to all wash feet like Jesus said. We believe that what he meant was you need to serve each other. You need to serve each other. You need to put each other first. That's what I want you to keep doing. But when we ask this why question of why Jesus is doing it, the answer was actually already at the beginning of the passage, which I already said, right? Having loved his own, for the en having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He's doing this to show them his love, to show them what love looks like. Now, as I said at the beginning of the service, we're talking about love together. And we're talking about looking to Jesus to see love. Brian read for us this passage from Corinthians, which reminds us in this beautiful way, very famous passage, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it is not rude, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And there's a lot of things that it says about love there, and one of them is that love is not proud, which is pretty specific to what we see Jesus having done here. The Jesus who puts all his pride aside and takes on the lowliest of lowly jobs. Now, reminding the people who are reading this message and us that love is not proud was a tall order. I explained last week that that passage we read from Corinthians was a letter, part of a letter written to a church in a place called Corinth to people 
called the Corinthians, like we're called the Hamiltonians. And so he says to the Corinthians, you know, here's what love looks like. It's not proud. And that was a tricky thing because one of the reasons he's saying all this is that they are fighting over who's a better Christian. We know this from the rest of the letter. And they're like, I have this spiritual gift, so I think I'm a better Christian, and you don't have this gift, so maybe you're not such a good Christian. And then it says, love isn't proud. He's reminding them that love is the basis of everything and then describes what that should look like. And, and, but then he acknowledges as well that we don't always see this in ourselves, just like the Corinthians don't see it in themselves. And when Brian read, you heard this image when it says, you know, we only see a part when we look at ourselves, it says, we oh, sorry. It says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. One day we shall see fully. So he's naming, when we look to ourselves to see all these things, we just see a poor reflection, which makes sense because the mirrors in Corinth at this time were actually made of polished bronze, glass mirrors like we use today. They didn't get invented till a couple centuries ago. So they were used to seeing mirrors that were just a poor reflection of who you were. And so he says, these mirrors, just like you look in a mirror, you see a poor reflection. When you look in a mirror to see love, you're going to see a poor reflection. You are proud Corinthians. And this is true of us as well. And when I think about myself, I think of many ways <laughs> that I want to be able to look at myself and see a very clear reflection of love. We did this, every, we're going to do this every week. <laughs> what does it mean to see love? And I want to see that, but I know it is not always clear. And I know that I cannot look to myself to see love that is not proud, even if I try. Let me give you a little example. A few years ago, uh, for, as we were getting ready for Easter, one of the things we did was each day we had something you could come and do the week before Easter to remind yourself of that story of what we call Holy Week. And so one night we had a night that we called Cleansing the Temple. And in the story of Jesus, it tells us that one day he goes to their local place of worship, and there's people selling stuff, and he like drives them out because he says, you, you know, you've misused the place of God. And so we said, to remind us of that story, come to the church, and we will have a reflection for you in a time of quiet, and then we're all going to pick a cleaning job to do at the church, and, and as we clean, we're going to reflect on cleansing the temple. Bonus, church got cleaner. So anyway... Um, and so what we did was we put a list together, Brian and I, our custodian, of jobs that aren't like anyone's job, right? They're not the custodian jobs. They're ones that get easily missed. So like cleaning those windows at the back. And uh, a couple people went around and like wiped all the metal on the chairs. Like these, by the way, if you ever want to do any of these jobs, like we will take... Uh, always looking for offer. So I had put a lot of this list together. I was so excited to get some of these jobs done. But the one I was most excited about was I wanted someone to clean the fridge in the kitchen. There's two fridges in the kitchen. One, our rental, our day, the daycare that rents uses. And the other is our fridge, but we don't really do a ton in the kitchen, so it's, uh, there's some rentals they use it and sometimes other things, and so what happens sometimes is someone does an event and then they leave something in the fridge and they're like, oh, someone will use it, but there's no someone that ever uses it, and it was just disgusting. The kitchen, has, that fridge as a rule is gross, and it had gotten particularly gross, so I was like, oh, I really hope someone cleans the fridge. So 
I came back, you know, everyone had picked their jobs, and I come and the list is almost done, and I look, and what is like the only job left, and it's my turn to pick? Cleaning the stupid fridge. I'm like, fine, I'll clean the fridge. So when I go to clean the fridge, and as I'm cleaning, I have to tell you guys, and I'm just going to say it so that you can like empathize with me. It was so gross. Brian's laughing because he heard me. And so at one point, I dumped out a bag of milk, and it was so curdled that I had to take a knife and start cutting it to get it to go down the sink. So I'm in the kitchen going, Brian like comes from the other side. I'm just having this horrific reaction to clean the kitchen. I'm practically in tears. It's so disgusting. And so I come out and I go to everyone, I just cleaned the fridge. Like someone do something for me. So it's funny because you might think, wow, what a wonderful pastor. She cleaned the fridge. That's really humble of her. I'm here to tell you, no. Because I want to tell you, just like that mud on the feet, that the entire time, Every minute I was cleaning the fridge, you know what my thought was? I shouldn't have to do this. The whole time I was like, I can't believe I'm the one cleaning this fridge. Someone else should have had to clean this fridge. This shouldn't be my job. I can't believe I am stuck doing this job. Someone else should have to do this. Because you know what? I love you guys, but my love is proud. <laughs> it is. You know, it's funny, because as we were doing it, it was kind of like God was like, you know, Leanne, you actually use the fridge more than anyone. Of all the someone who should have done it, it makes perfect sense that it was you. I had to fight my pride. But you know what? We all do it, too. Even as we look at ourselves, and we look at ourselves as a church, we're really honest. As people, as individuals, as community, is, do we find it easy for our love not to be proud? Sometimes we're like, you know what? It's, I shouldn't have to apologize. That other person should apologize first. It's not on me. Or our love is so proud that we find ourselves saying, I shouldn't have to do that job. That should be someone else. We say, um, I didn't get thanked enough or remembered enough. I've seen people leaving churches because they didn't get enough attention or response for ways that they wanted to serve. We say, I shouldn't have to go and help in that ministry downtown. I don't live there. I don't go downtown. Because sometimes our love is really proud it's true, right? Now my hands are really dirty. There are so many ways that we struggle to have love that isn't proud. We can be too proud to wash feet, too proud to engage in a way that allows us to really get down and dirty with the least of these, too proud sometimes to seek healing in a relationship because we figure it's on somebody else and not on us. And you know, just so we know the Corinthians struggled too, and your pastor struggles too, and people back then struggled too. In the book of Mark, just before this happens, two of Jesus' disciples, it reads, it says this, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in glory. You love that? He says, what do you want me to do? They say, we would like to have the best spot in heaven, please. It's <laughs> literally what they're saying. And then he goes on to say, you know that... Um, this should not be so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must, become, must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man, meaning me, did not come to be served, not come to serve, not come to be served, but to serve and give his life 
as a ransom for many. Even as Jesus is washing feet, he's modeling everything about who he is and what he will do. He's about to literally give his whole life away when he didn't deserve to. And so as these two men say, you know, and these are men, James and John, who have followed Jesus so closely. They, see, they have seen Jesus reach out to the poorest. They've seen Jesus engage with the people everyone else says you shouldn't engage with. And they're still like, could we have the best spots in heaven? Because we are proud. We are proud. And then he shows them just a few days later what it really means to be his disciple and what it means to follow him, and what it means to live the way of Jesus. When he, their leader, their superior, their teacher, their mentor, the God of the universe, washes their feet to show the extent of his love. And we need this love, love that is not proud. We know proud love is all around us, and it's hard to see past it sometimes but we can see it somewhere. We see this humble love in Jesus who washed feet because he loved us. Love that did not puff up. Love that did not need to prove itself, that did not demand its own way. A love that gave everything up. A love that was not proud. I'm going to do a quick math lesson as we end. A little reminder. Maybe you remember in math when you did algebra and you learned this really simple thing. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals? Good. I'll tell you it again. If A equals, well, here's a little reminder. So if love is not proud, and if Jesus is not proud, then Jesus equals love.